You put the clocks back a week after us. You seem to do everything different here. <laughs> we just put the clocks back already. And then you confuse the Brits by then putting the clocks. I've been through two clock changes going back and forth like a yo-yo. So I'm not sure what time it is, but there we go. I want to speak to you anyway, without wasting any more time, on this amazing subject of the wonder of hearing. Um, oh, what happened then? Oh, sorry. I think that's some background that I hadn't realised was on it. Well, forget it. That's coming later, that piece. I just threw me a bit. But I've had some um, background on engine stability, flame resonance and things like that, which you can see on the slides here, is my sort of area of expertise in physics and uh, study of combustion combined with burning. And that has led to my understanding acoustics. I do another talk on the human voice, which uh, of course is very relevant as well. But this whole area of sound is just utterly incredible when you study both the way we speak, which is not something I'm doing tonight, and what I am doing tonight, which is studying how we hear. Some of you know that I've worked in a number of areas, not just in engines and acoustics, which is what's there, but I've also worked in uh, with the Bombardier Beetle. And with that in mind, can I just remind you that there is a big book out there, I meant to bring it up to the front here, but the, the big book, the, you know, big coffee table book, there's loads of copies of that and you might like to uh, use that to get a hold of us some copies of that to give out at Christmas to your family, perhaps to those who are not yet convinced on the area of creation. Um, and they, you would like to give them something which really, uh, goes into some depth on the issue of the human ear. There's a whole chapter on that. There is um, a whole chapter on the Bombardier Beetle in there. But if you can't afford that, why not get multiple copies of this tiny little book, which is a summary of the big book. And it's got sections on flight. It's got sections on dragonflies. It's got section on the Bombardier Beetle that I've just mentioned, which is a shortened version of the big book. It was written by myself and Stuart Burgess, who is another gentleman who speaks on creation and is a scientist based at Bristol. Then there's my book, Genesis for Today, there on the bookstall. Then there's this other tiny booklet, but I'm using it as a tract. I give it out. I've written it. Are you really an atheist? Sadly, many young people are turning to atheism. So you might like to get a whole stack of those to give out to people, we've just uh, got two for a dollar on those. So there's also some DVDs. I know DVDs are going out, so I'm actually no longer producing my talks on DVD. They're all going online, and uh, I, I can give you the websites if you ask me, and uh, it's, if you just put andymackintosh.org, it will actually take you to a section on that site, which will then take you to where... The, uh, the talks that I've given are, are available. So do consider getting those books afterwards. And also there is a sheet where you can sign up if you'd like to receive my prayer letter. But I can't afford any mutations in the email address. So don't make a mistake. 
and write it as clearly as you can. It's one thing to sort of slightly change words that we use, <laughs> like aluminium because aluminium and stuff like that. But it's quite another thing to put a mutation into your email address. I won't be able to understand it. So please make sure that it's all correct there. I have had some issues sometimes. So in the scriptures, it's constantly referred to the greatness of what God has done. He, Job says, he is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. And then this verse that I mentioned this morning, the God who does great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without n- number. God is full of the greatness of what he has done in creation. And it's one of the great things in doing science is that you discover what God has done. Psalm 111, which I did quote this morning, says this, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. And it was James Clark Maxwell, I told you, who wrote this on, and it's still there, on the Cavendish Laboratories at the University of Cambridge. Trouble is, he wrote it in Latin, so nobody can read it today. But there it is still today, written in Latin, the works of the Lord are great. And there was this great physicist, excellent man, died at 49, achieved more in his uh, 30 or 35 years of in that discipline than most people have achieved, or, you know, 10 men have achieved even uh, in their longer lifespans. He was a very great scientist. Einstein looked out up to him. And Einstein said he could never have done his work without James Clark Maxwell. And then, of course, this bit that I've highlighted, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. In other words, we're finding things out what God has done. That's really what the science is all about. And that applies to hearing. You thought that your ears were just just there you never really thought about what goes on but actually it's utterly amazing what God has done another verse in the Bible specifically talking about hearing and there's a number of them here is Proverbs 20 the hearing ear and the seeing eye the Lord has made even both of them and Psalm 94 verse 9 he that planted the ear shall he not hear he that formed the eye shall he not see and then when Jesus was answering John the Baptist, who was saying, you know, are you really the Messiah? Basically, that's what he was saying. And you can understand him being there in prison. And there was this little doubt coming across him. The Lord didn't answer straight. He actually answered by basically saying, you know your scriptures, don't you, John? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. In other words, he was turning him to Isaiah, which prophesied that that's what would happen when the Messiah came. One of the most amazing miracles was the deaf and dumb man. And it says, the Lord sighed, and he saith unto him, Father, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. We have a marvellous saviour who demonstrated his power by immediately bringing that which was lacking, whether it be sight, whether it be uh, 
uh, in this case, not being able to hear, not being able to speak, and even a person who is dead on a number of occasions, raising them from the dead. So let me go into the science. What is sound? Sound is what you've heard here from the choir earlier as they were practising the pageant, if you came early. It's beautiful. Makes me want to stay and hear the rest and hear the whole thing. Must be wonderful. But, you know, sound we take for granted. You take it for granted that you can hear my voice now. But what am I doing? I'm actually causing sound waves, very small vibrations in the air, which are travelling through the air and reaching your ears. So they are basically compression waves. Apart from the fact that you might have a few problems breathing, but if you actually took the air out of this room, you know, and you might die, but that's just, by the way, you wouldn't be able to hear, right? Apart from the fact you'd be dead anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, it, you need the air in order to get the vibrations going through the medium. You need a gas to be there. And sound has a frequency. Sound is measured by the vi number of vibrations per second. Even though it's compression waves doing this, and the opposite is rarefaction pushing out, we actually, it's a bit difficult to actually draw that all the time, so we tend to do sine waves, which is really just saying that the pressure goes up and it comes down. Pressure comes up, right, as you squeeze in, and then it goes down again. So even though it's this way round, we're actually drawing it the other way round, which is really just for ease of drawing. So you get the idea of three cycles per second or six cycles per second. A chap called Hertz got involved in these early ideas and his name has got associated with the unit frequency, which is one, the unit of frequency, which is one cycle per second. We can hear right down to 20 cycles per second is a very, very low rumble. Speech is in the area of 4,000 cycles per second. And when you're born, you can hear right up to 20,000 cycles per second. When you're getting a bit old, that is in your teens. Yes, in your teens, you begin to lose the upper top part. If you start listening to a lot of loud music, it might go a little bit more quickly. So be careful to look after your ears. A piano keyboard is there, going from roughly 27 and a half up to about 4,200 cycles per second. Okay? So you can hear much higher frequencies. And of course, as was said this morning, um, you might use the excuse, I didn't hear my wife say, can you do the washing up? Might be selective hearing. But, you know, we do tend to have a few problems hearing as we get older. And I can hear nowhere near 20,000 cycles per second. There are frequency generators which you can get online and you can change the frequency and you could test your ears. Just be a bit careful, particularly about the, uh, the magnitude that you put it at. But you'll be surprised that a good number of you won't be able to hear the 20,000. I can barely hear the 10,000. So actually, I am struggling, but then I am a bit older than most of you. So you do need to be aware that your hearing is very, very delicate. So not only is there frequencies, the issue is how much 
you are varying the frequent, varying the pressure. So it may be that you're at three cycles per second, but supposing you are actually hearing it in a very loud way, then the amplitude, it's the amount that you're pushing in and out, which is the issue. Normal atmospheric pressure is measured in a units which are not very easy to understand. It's actually a force per unit area. And we call that a Pascal. He's another gentleman who actually was a very, very clever gentleman. Um, and that he's given his name to that unit. So it's very interesting, though, the amount that we are varying the pressure when we speak is minuscule. Normal speech like I'm using now is somewhere in the region of 10, 20, even millipascals, a thousandth of a pascal. And a pascal itself is one hundred thousandth, uh, 10 to the minus 5 if you're going to be technical, of, uh, of an atmosphere. So it's about 10 to the minus 8, 1 over 10 with 1 with 10 zeros after it, 8 zeros after it, which you are varying the pressure. In other words, it's barely noticeable that we're actually changing the pressure. But our ears are sensitive to that. We can actually sense this coming in and out of the pressure of somebody speaking and they're just slightly changing by 10 to the minus 8, the atmosphere atmospheric pressure that we're hearing. So actually, when it comes to measuring pressure, um, when we get a jet engine, which is really blasting at the end of a O'Hare airport somewhere, um, maybe it's about 100 metres distance, 100 yards distance, or you don't deal with yards, you deal with feet, but you don't deal with yards. What on earth happened? I just don't understand it. You've taken some things and not other things. I'll tell you something else. You've taken the gallon, but you've made it smaller. <laughs> what on earth? I mean, just a minute, get a life. You know, you just <laughs> completely ruined everything. So we get totally confused. Then you don't change the clock at the proper time. Oh, dear. Just, you need to start again, guys. Um, but we won't go there anymore. So where was I? The jet engine, right? which is blasting out, it's changing the vibration at about 50 pascals, which is, of course, an awful lot more than speech. But it's still nowhere near any sort of considerable pressure change in terms of an atmosphere, but it's very, very loud. And I won't go into all the detail, but we use the logarithmic scale for various reasons. It enables us to actually keep things within a, 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 a diagram that we can understand and use in acoustics. And we talk about decibels. So it's actually a log of a pressure change. And normal speech is about 40 to 60 decibels. A jet engine is about 128 decibels. A painful noise would be about 130 decibels. Do you know why a rock concert sits there? Okay. So you need to be very careful. I'm not commenting on the music, guys. You must work those things through in terms of the content. But I am concerned about people blasting their ears. When they're young, they can actually do damage to their ears. 
Well, that's the end of my little sort of pet talk on protect your ears. Now let's come into what is happening with your ears. When we actually communicate one with the other, we've got this outer ear out here. Then we've got the middle ear, which is the bit which is really where it gets very interesting. And then we've got the inner ear. Now the inner ear is where it gets absolutely fascinating. We'll start with the outer ear, which is sometimes called the pinner. It's not just any old shape. It's actually very important. You've usually got two. We might smile because sometimes I've met people with only one ear. And yet, they can marvellously still hear to a certain extent, but what they can't do is actually pinpoint exactly where the sound is coming from. You do it automatically when you're young. You'll hear somebody speak and you'll know immediately where the sound is coming from because the sound coming to one ear takes slightly different time to get to you than the sound coming, the same sound coming to the other ear. And the slight difference enables you to pinpoint where the hear, where the noise is coming from. We can't do it as well as other creatures in the in nature like owls, which have such specialised hearing that they can identify where a vole is in the undergrowth in the dark and they can know exactly where it is. And in fact, both their ears are not actually at the same point in their head. One ear is slightly higher than the other and they are able to actually ascertain not only where the noise is coming from this way, but also that way. And they can actually pinpoint exactly where the vole is or whatever creature it is that they're going to snatch with their talons. Absolutely remarkable. But there is another aspect, and that is that the very shape of your ear funnels the sound down the ear canal, which is this bit here, which you can see just coming away from the ear shape that you can see on the outside. And you can see this canal, which is just the right size, not too wide, such that you could get your little finger down, which is a good thing, but you can get the sound coming in. You need to be very careful if you do actually sometimes have earwax and other things. We have to very be very careful in removing that for obvious reasons, because you might damage the eardrum, which we're coming to. I just need to say a little bit about resonance. Resonance is when something vibrates in sympathy with something else. So if I knock this wooden platform, wooden lectern here, it's vibrating and it's making a sound. If I vibrate a glass, imagine that glass in the picture, then it will vibrate at its natural frequency. If I get a sound generator, and actually play that frequency and play it quite loudly, that glass will vibrate in sympathy. And you'll get this happening such that the glass actually could break. In fact, you could do the same thing at Christmas time. If you're doing the washing up and you get a slight bit of washing up liquid on the top of a glass and put your finger over it, you can actually make the glass vibrate before your mum says, get on with the washing up and, you know, do it properly. But, you know, that vibration and resonance is important. And you'll see why in a moment. Another example is the famous Tacoma River Bridge, which vibrated, I think it was somewhere in the 1940s, 
that the Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapsed due to the wind driving a, a, a vibration which meant that the engineers were at fault. They should have realised that there was a natural frequency of that bridge and that the wind was likely to cause that to happen, and it did. I always like to know what happened to the poor car, which they filmed there. Did it get, end up in the t- Tacoma? I'm not sure. But so you've got resonance. Think now of a flute which might be playing and you've got a series of closed notes, closed holes here, but one of them is open. So then you've got what we call a natural frequency for that tube. Then if you close other holes, the second picture shows you another natural frequency, which means you get a different note depending on which tubes, which holes you leave closed and which holes you open. So that's the principle of how a wind instrument works. So there is a natural frequency to a flute or to a flute with some of the holes open and some of them closed. Now, once you've understood that, now I come to the, back to the ear canal, there is a natural frequency to the roughly two centimetre long uh, ear canal. What is that natural frequency? Just to remind you that the hole is not big enough to get your little finger down, but it is going to resonate at a natural frequency. And the answer is that it resonates at approximately 4,000 cycles per second, which is exactly in the middle of the speech area. So it's not surprising. Everything is deliberately made that we should have the speech part of the frequencies magnified. If you want to know how we got to that, you're dealing with a quarter wavelength because you're dealing with an open tube one end and closed at the other end. If you look at the diagram at the top right there, it explains it. Some of you are more engineering uh, orientated, so you might be able to understand what I've put there at the top left, which is the speed of sound is the frequency times the wavelength. You're dealing with a quarter of the uh, of that, so you're actually dealing with the actual frequency, which is going to have a four in it, and so with the speed of sound, roughly 320 meters per second, you could work out the wavelength, and therefore the frequency, F comes out to be 4,000 cycles per second. The wavelength is eight centimeters. You're dealing with a quarter of that, so. It, it actually is, is remarkable because that's right in the middle of the frequency range for speech. Now, of course, other mammals have a similar system to us. The ear of a dog or the ear of a cat will have a different natural frequency. The ear of a dog is actually much more in sympathy with a much higher frequency of about 40 thousand cycles per second. So you have a dog whistle, which a person can't hear, but the dog can hear. Then I actually like birds and uh, I like to have our garden have birds feed us out and watching the birds. 
And I don't like cats for that reason because the cats are always trying to get the birds. So you have things called cat scarers because cats hear up to 60,000 cycles per second. So you put out your cat scarers, which are blasting out a sound which I can't hear and dogs even won't hear them, but a cat will hear a very high frequency. And would you believe it? The cats just sit on the cat scarers. So we've given up on cats. But uh, there we go. So ears of dogs, and by the way, ears of cats, actually have a right ankle bend in their ear canal. They are not designed in the same way as our ears, even though they do have the same principle of a membrane vibrating, which we're now coming to in the middle ear. What is that membrane? Where it, well, it is the eardrum. And that eardrum is connected to, uh, to, by three little bones. Let me put that picture back up there. It's connected by three little bones called the ossicle bones, which are the only bones in the human body which do not grow. All the other bones in your body grow at normal uh, expansion as you start uh, growing up from a little baby. But these bones are exactly the same size when you're born as when you die. Here's a diagram of them. There's a nickel, which you can see, and you can see how small these bones are. The one on the left then is the malleus, sometimes called the hammer. The next one is the incus, which is sometimes called the anvil. And the last one is called the stapes, sometimes called the stirrup, which because it looks a bit like the stirrup that you might use uh, getting onto a horse. So these are the ossicle bones. They are tiny bones and they do not grow. They're the only bones in the body which stay the same size as when you were born as a baby. Evolution tries to say that those bones actually came into position by a process which I will explain to you in a moment. They really are tiny bones and their size is very important and they are supported by ligaments in the middle ear and they have to be exactly placed such that they are just touching one another such that when the malleus, which is literally attached to the tympanic membrane, the eardrum, when that is vibrating, it pushes against the anvil, which then pushes the stapes. It's actually that way around the way that you're looking at it, so I'll go that way. So here's the eardrum vibrating, the anvil is going like that, and it's pushing this piston-like stapes, and it's actually a way of magnifying the amplification, amplifying the uh, sound which has been created by air pressure against the vibrating tympanic membrane. Against real money, as against the nickel that I just showed you, that's what it looks like, okay? Our little penny, so that's just by the way. <laughs> now, this is the evolutionary tale as to how those bones came about. They talk about the mammalian ossicle bones developing from the reptile jaw, and this is what they say. As you can see, yeah, I can't point because, well, I could point to this one, actually. Maybe I should do that. I've got a pointer, but it's in, it's in my bag, so I won't try to it. But um, you'll see there at the top, you've got the mammal, right, where you've got the, the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. On the bottom, you've got a reptile. The reptile just has 
a, a long stapes bone, which is going direct from the eardrum to the inner ear. It's a very different system. But evolutionists have noticed that reptiles have a little bone at the back of the lower jaw and the back of the upper jaw. And they maintain that the tiny little bone at the up, at the back of the upper jaw moved and actually became the incus and the back of the lower jaw moved and became the malleus. That's what they actually say happened. And it, it gradually changed over a long period of time. Even Richard Dawkins admitted that this is really quite a tale. And there really wasn't much evidence for it, but he didn't use those terms. This is what he said. The lower jaw, a single bone in mammals, the reptilian lower jaw is more complicated and thereby hangs a fascinating tale that I reluctantly omitted from this book. In an amazing feat of evolutionary ledger domain, we'll come to what that word means in a moment, the smaller bones of the reptilian jaw were co-opted into the mammalian ear where they constitute an exquisitely delicate bridge to transport sound from the eardrum to the inner ear. Hmm. It's very true what he says there, they constitute an exquisitely delicate bridge to transport sound from the eardrum to the inner ear. Yeah, I agree with that point. What on earth did he mean by ledger domain? Well, ledger domain, if you look it up, means sleight of hand. It can mean the same as artfulness, chicanery, conjuring, craftiness, cunning, deceit, deception, hocus pocus. I like that. Manipulation or trickery. Well, a certain Brian Cox, one of our, you know, um, young men who thinks that he can tell us all about evolution, um, trying to replace David Attenborough, I guess, has done a film called The Wonders of Life. And in this film, this is what he said. Hear what he has to say. As continued. Around 210 million years ago, the first mammals evolved. And unlike our friends, the reptiles here, mammals have a jaw that's made of only one bone. A reptile's jaw is made of several bones fused together. So that freed up two bones, which moved and shrank and eventually became the malleus, the incus and stapes. So this is the origin of those three tiny bones that are so important to mammalian hearing. If you have to resort to flick books to make your point, there is something wrong. Would you not agree? He actually admitted that they shrank as well. And indeed, in the actual literature, Things like this are spoken about, and I'll interpret it for you. The paradox of how the bones of the ancestral jaw joint could function both as a joint hinge for powerful load-bearing mastication, that means eating, and as a mandibular middle ear that was delicate enough for hearing, basically it's admitting that there is a massive problem, that the in-between creature couldn't, wouldn't be able to eat and would be dead because it couldn't eat. 
because you're trying to alter the jaw at the same time as making this very delicate system for hearing. Totally inadequate explanation. It clearly is just a fairy tale. It's nothing to do with real science. So that system is frankly amazing, that middle ear, but now it gets an even more amazing. Now we come to the cochlear. The cochlear is the inner ear. And the way the inner ear works is just utterly stupendous because you've got vibration in air, which has caused this vibration of the tympanic membrane, which is like a drum with a drumstick behind, right? Causing the anvil then to move, which then sends the stapes, which is like a piston, to go into the inner ear. Where Why is it doing that? Because the inner ear is got, has got liquid in it, not air. So these three little bones are shown here. Just have a look at them and you'll see that there is a top membrane that the stapes is going into, which is the oval window. And the one below it is called the circular window. And the very fact that you've got this circular window, right, which is the one underneath, which is going out while the other one's going in, is frankly a mark of brilliance engineering immediately. Because where you've got liquid, liquid, unlike air, essentially doesn't compress. It does compress a minuscule amount, but essentially liquid is incompressible, which is why you use it to lift a great big truck, right? If you want to change the wheel of your car even, you have to get some sort of trolley, which has usually got oil in. We usually use oil, but you could use any liquid. And actually, if you pump that liquid, the liquid has got to go somewhere, so it pushes up the car, and you can lift up the car and take the wheel off and everything else, okay? So that's what's going in on inside. You've got a liquid in a small area. It's got to have somewhere to go. So the piston from the stapes pushes into the inner ear, and the other, it sends liquid through the system and that's got to have a place to go to, which is why the membrane below it is pushing out in the opposite direction. So you've got this system. I know it's a very old video, but it does actually make the point. You've got the, you've, you've got the stapes at the top and I've just mentioned the circular window at the bottom. And now you've got this wavy thing inside. What on earth is that? Well, that is called the... There'll be a test afterwards, by the way, and Jim and Mark will mark it. No, I'm just joking you. But, <laughs> but that is the, the wavy thing that is on the picture now. That is the basilar membrane. Now, this is where it gets utterly mind-boggling. We're going to unwrap the cochlea, right? It's called a cochlea because it looks like a cockle shell, okay? Now, this is going on in your ears now as you are listening to me. Right? You've got a basilar membrane which is vibrating. Now we're going to actually unwind that cochlea and we're going to regard it as something which is opened, right? So unwound. And this stapes, right, is pushing at the top. It's the red little pumping in and out bone. That's the stapes. And it's causing the basilar membrane to vibrate at one location. The fluid dynamics of what's happening to this liquid, which is rather like water, is frankly, it's, it's impossible really for me to try and convey this, but it's the shape 
of that cochlea, even though we've unwound it, you can see that it's not just completely straight. It's actually tapering. And it's, it's going along the basilar membrane and then it's going around it, coming back the other way. And it actually causes only one location on the basilar membrane to vibrate. Uh, some of you are engineers here and you may just, just maybe perhaps five or six of you in this group will be engineers and you'll understand this point. The rest of you, as I said the other day in another talk I was giving, you can go to sleep while I just talk to the engineers for a moment. But some of you have heard of frequency analyzers, right? You used to use oscilloscopes where you'd actually sort of get a frequency diagram. Well, think of that because what you've got here is an analog frequency analyzer. In other words, depending on what the frequency is coming in, the location of the vibration is determined by the frequency. So if it's high frequency, it comes over here. If it's low frequency, it comes over here. So it takes the sound and it splits it into its component frequencies, which is frankly, utterly amazing. And if you're more musically inclined, the engineers can now hopefully have got the message in their language. If I speak to the musicians here, it's a little bit like having a keyboard inside your ear with a little green man playing the appropriate note of the frequencies or the notes which are coming in. So if it's very high frequency up here, that frequency down here is played. If it's a very low frequency which is coming in, and the note over here is played. In other words, the basilar membrane is vibrating at the appropriate frequencies which are coming in. So you are physically distributing the frequencies or the notes of what's coming in, the pitch of what's coming in, to appropriate notes, like a little green man is playing an organ inside your ear. Do you get it? Are you all going to sleep? You with me? You're getting the idea of what I'm saying. I'm trying to use language such that you will understand and appreciate, but actually the fluid dynamics of what's going on in the ear is something else which I won't be able to explain in this talk. So the, the cochlea, we've unwound it. You've got a basilar membrane. It's a bit like an xylophone, right? And it's tapered a little bit like an xylophone. So you get an appropriate note depending on the frequency that's coming in. So let's play this little video clip, which will help you to understand, hopefully, a little bit more. So let's play this. Cochlear now uncoils, and we look at the basilar membrane, and now see what happens when we play individual tones. So that's low frequency, high frequency. Now a chord. And finally, something really complex. Bach's Toccata and Fugue literally being played by a little green man on your basilar membrane. Do you get it? So whatever frequency is coming in, it's reflected on the basilar membrane. But that's only the beginnings of the astonishing mechanics of what's going on. You've got effectively, as I've just said, a keyboard in your inner ear. And the frequencies which are coming in 
maybe all sorts of frequencies at the moment I'm speaking, right? And I'm using a whole raft of frequencies. And they are all brilliantly conveyed to every one of your ears by a whole set of notes played on that keyboard, which is at the moment not music. It's just a, a sound of my voice. So my voice could be at any one time split into a whole set of frequencies. Do you get it? So you can add frequencies because you're dealing with very, very small changes in the atmospheric pressure. There's no to the engineers here, there's no non-linearities you need to worry about. You're just adding all these frequencies together and different amplitudes of those frequencies. But of course, this means that if we were to actually, I've cheated here, I've used a sonic visualizer program and I've got now the keyboard down at the bottom here. This is the keyboard, right? You can see it. You can see the three black notes, then two black notes. So that's an octave all the time. And we're now going to play as was said by the video earlier, we're going to play a chord and we'll just play different notes. There's one note. So you see the peak moving and now you play a chord. So that's what's happening with your basilar membrane. But now get this, when you hear music, you are hearing something which is way over-designed just to convey some message or other, which system you wouldn't need to be so sensitive. Our ears are so sensitive in our inner ear that we can hear a whole range of frequencies which enables us to hear slightly different frequencies which make a very pleasant sound for, for music. Let me make the point that we are over-designed. We don't need this. But it does give us the ability to appreciate aesthetics. Basically, I'm not going to tell you that your ears are made for appreciating beauty. To appreciate, if you like, the colour of sound which produces, I'm using colour in a metaphor really, uh, the colour of sound being all the other harmonics which makes listening to music so beautiful. Here's a particular piece which I like, which is John Dunbar theme in Dances in Walls, a film produced many years ago. But this is a very beautiful piece of music. Listen to this. And you'll see that the main note I'm giving you the arrow of E flat, it starts with, and then it moves up and down the scale. But you've got all the other harmonics, which is the bit above the main note. Your ear has such capacity to hear all the harmonics which makes the music so beautiful. Listen to this. So you have the E flat, the G, this is the main note. But you have all the other frequencies of the violins, the cellos and all the other instruments giving you the harmony. So you have the ability to hear all the higher frequencies, which means that you appreciate the beauty of this piece. At least most of you do. So this is frankly amazing that our ears are made to appreciate beauty. You can hear the double bass. You can hear the cello. You can hear the violins and it all 
plays into your emotions. God has made us to appreciate beauty. But I still haven't explained all the depths of hearing. I just need to make one comment though as I pass. And that's this, that of course somebody might say, well, dogs also can sort of appreciate hearing music. Yes, but they cannot sing with it, which you can. Let me demonstrate with Stuart Burgess's Chihuahua. I'll play this. This is his daughter playing. And you know that dogs do this. They will make a squeak, but they haven't a clue what they're doing. In other words, they don't really know how to actually respond in tune with the music. They are hearing something evidently, and it does something to them, but it doesn't produce an appreciation, presumably, of beauty. So let me now just summarise. We've talked about these three little bones, right? And we've talked about the fact that there's a pump, the stapes, which is going into the inner ear. In the inner ear, we have the ability to split the sound up into high frequency, which is near the oval window. And then right down there is the low frequency. But if you think this is amazing, there is something even more spectacular, which now happens. We've dealt with fluid mechanics of sloshing liquid in the inner ear. We've dealt with the air vibration and the mechanical engineering of those three little bones. But now we move into electrical systems. If we slice across the cochlea, right? And the cochlea is tiny, right? But if you slice across it, you actually have three canals in the cochlea. One of them is the tympanic canal attached, as I said, to the oval window. Then coming round underneath the basilar membrane is the vestibular canal, which attaches to the circular window, which I said has to go out while the other one goes in. But there is a third canal, and along that canal, underneath the basilar membrane, is running the organ of corti. The organ of corti is in the cochlear duct and in that liquid is endolymph, which is electrically charged fluid, right? It's electrically charged, a bit like the battery, right, of your car, right? It works with an electrically charged distilled water originally and it becomes electrically charged. It's got ions in it. Well, what is happening is frankly utterly amazing because the organ of Corti has tiny little hairs pushing up all along the basilar membrane. It's the organ of Corti in its own canal and it has tiny little hairs which are poking up into this electrically charged fluid. There is also yet another membrane at the top called the tectoral membrane. And these little hairs, which are actually uh, above the, or just by the basilar membrane, are actually being made to move as the fluid moves down that canal. So 
if the basilar membrane is vibrating here, right, and, the, and it's a particular frequency, let's say it's 440 cycles per second as the orchestra are playing A, right, which is 440 cycles per second, right? So at 440 cycles per second, the basilar membrane is moving up and down, okay? And the organ of Corti is also being disturbed and there are hairs which are coming up into their own fluid which is electrically charged at this point which represents 440 cycles per second. And literally what the hairs are doing is they come in pairs. They literally come in pairs and they are called stereocilia. You could get these hairs, the stereocilia, are so, so small that you could get 72 of them in the width of a human hair. Now, my hair is a bit precious, as you can gather. I'm going bald. So I won't take a hair off if you don't mind. But if I were to take a hair off, you could get 72 of the stereocilia in the width of a human hair. But these stereocilia, when they bend over, this gets even more amazing. As these stereocilia bend over, there is literally, literally a spring attached to the top of one hair and it's attached to the side of its adjacent hair. So when they tip over, the hair here at the top has a little trap door and it opens and the spring then pulls it back again such that when the sound has actually gone for that frequency, it closes down. Which is why, by the way, you've got to be careful about listening to loud music or listening repeatedly to a sound at one particular frequency. You actually find that the hairs are vibrating and then snap. You've lost the ability to hear at that frequency. But so the trapdoor opens and the ions in the fluid, the electrically charged calcium ions and potassium ions go down that particular uh, that particular tube, and they then excite the spiral ganglion nerve underneath, running alongside the basilar membrane is this organ of Corti, and under the hairs is this little is these little nerves, and every one of them is attached for a particular frequency. So if I'm listening to a high frequency here and a low frequency here, then that excites the nerve and it's sent to the brain. Does that amaze you? It's frankly utterly astounding to suggest that this came about by random mutations. The whole thing is just nonsense. It shows that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is showing to us, here's the picture, I meant to have it up when I was describing these hairs. There you are, you've got a bigger picture. So you can see the green stereocilia as they bend over, there's a whole chapter on it in my big book, by the way, if you want to get it afterwards, and I hope some of you will, because if anybody doubts that we are fearfully and wonderfully created by God, surely the science is po pointing with a massive signpost that you are made by a creator who knows what he's doing, who's combined electrical engineering with fluid mechanical engineering with mechanical engineering, right? 
And he's made it all such that you could hear not just sound, basic sounds, but to hear music and to hear aesthetics, which, of course, we all appreciate. But that tiny little spring is actually visible if you look very carefully at these right-hand pictures, which is from an electron microscope, you can actually see the tiny little spring that I refer to. It's just utterly amazing. Well, I've just about finished, but I do just want to point out something, that when the spiral ganglion nerve transmits the electrical signals to the brain, it is actually quite an amazing system in its own right because those signals go to the auditory cortex in the brain and if they're to do with logic, they end up sitting on the left side of the brain. If they're to do with music and art, then it ends up on the right side of the brain and as the brain is deciding, the signal bounces back and forth. It's going extremely fast, of course, roughly at the speed of light, frankly, it's an electromagnetic signal and finally it settles in one side of the brain or the other. So if it's music, it sits on the right side of the brain. If it's logic to do with mathematics or some logical statement, it sits in the left. So if I'm listening to my wife, it goes to both. And she says, you're not listening to me properly. And I'm just admiring the wonderful way she speaks. There you go. So there is more that I could say because there is also the balance system which is very close to, these, uh, to this, this um, uh, cochlea. There is a balance system which has its own system of hairs for a, circular, a semicircular canal that way, semicircular canal that way, and the semicircular canal that way. Right? So we actually use that for balance. And when things go wrong, as they sometimes do, both in the hearing system and sometimes in the balance system, then you've got the same system of these little hairs not quite working properly and people get vertigo. That's just another, by the way, comment. But actually you can tell whether you've got a skull, which is to do with a human being or with an ape, by the semicircular canal, which when it's upright it's going to be horizontal. And of course, for an ape, it's, uh, it's upright and it's horizontal when it's like that. So when you put, supposedly say that that is really half a human being, the whole thing doesn't fit. You've either got a skull which is like that or you've got a skull which is like that. You can tell immediately from the inner ear whether you've got an ape or whether you've got a human being. And you could guess what, the Australopithecus Afarensis, commonly called Lucy, is clearly an ape when you look at the inner ear system. So there's many things that you could actually, I could talk about more in the questions if we wish. But suffice to say that the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made even both of them. May God be praised. Amen. And let me just say one last thing. The Lord says, everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. That's a spiritual statement, of course. And so is this one, which says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or literally suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. In other words, they close their ears to the truth. The science is massively pointing to the fact that there is a creator. That's why it's not really just a scientific battle on this creation evolution issue. It's a spiritual battle because people refuse to follow where the evidence is pointing. They refuse to submit not only to the creator, but to the one whom they know the Bible teaches is their saviour who bled and died for them. That is the issue. The battle of creation evolution is not really just about the science. It's about an ideology which has been forced onto the science. And that ideology, of course, is humanism stroke evolution. May God be praised. Thank you for listening so carefully. We're going to have a question time, aren't we?